Hello and welcome to Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show and Gardening 2.0. Today we're going to talk to a Minnesotan who has studied pollinators of native plants. Heather Holm is a naturalist and landscape designer who is fascinated by the insects that visit flowers. She studies these insects and takes incredible photographs of them. But Heather's passion isn't just any plant and any insects. She grows native plants and has learned about pollinators that have evolved with them. Sometimes these plants and animal relationships are very specific, and Heather has presented these associations in a new self-published reference, and we're going to learn about them too. Welcome, Heather, to Ken Drew's Real Dirt. Ken, thanks so much for having me on your show. You're so welcome, and congratulations on publishing Pollinators of Native Plants, Attract, Observe, and Identify Pollinators and Beneficial Insects. I have to say that the book is not just a reference, uh, but it's really a a guide for gardeners and nature lovers, of course, and it's written in an engaging and accessible text. Uh, I really like the way you write it. It's so clear and, and I was going to say simple. That doesn't sound good, but uh, oh. <laughs> clear. Well, concise or clear, maybe. Yeah, yeah and, and friendly. Yeah. yeah, I I put the book together to serve you know a number of different audiences. So whether a gardener who's just interested in plants can pick it up and, and learn, learn more about how to, what specific plants grow where. And, and then they can use it later on to, to look for pollinators. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, yeah, the, the purpose was just to find a, a wide audience for the people who would be using the book. Yeah, lots of different people. Uh, you show the plants, and you write about each one in great detail. You you talk about the the soil needs, the the time that they bloom, where they grow. You have maps of the United States, and you show the areas that these plants are native, and then you show the insects that are associated with the plant. And just to start off, how do you define beneficial insects? Well, it's obviously a human term, right? It's something that's serving us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But a beneficial insect is something that's providing a service for humans, whether they're uh, a predator insect that's preying on insect populations that need to be kept in balance in our gardens, such as aphids, or even just bees pollinating flowers. That's That's a beneficial insect because it's providing that pollination service for us humans. So it's kind of a human term in a sense, but uh, it helps to, you know, tell people that not all insects are bad. And I think in the hort industry, we tend to scare our fellow gardeners into thinking that, you know, all insects are bad and we need to figure out what they are and whether or not we should be getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just a small minority of insects that are actually causing a lot of problems in our gardens and most are quite benign or and many are beneficial Mm. you mentioned the the kind of the beneficial insects are it's a human term and that made me think of fragrance and color we we love fragrance and color but they didn't evolve for humans to like them right exactly there's you know bees for example have all these sensory on their antenna to pick up those fragrances that flowers are emitting so there's all this you know subtle interactions between plants and pollinators that we maybe aren't aware of but we choose the plants that you know we like like you said brighter colors or 
better form or show your longer longer lasting flowers um, but obviously pollinators have completely different needs than we do yeah that makes me think about double flowers when they breed things like double roses they're not helping the pollinators no they're not and i you know when i give talks i tell people you know it's it's fine if you have a double flowered rose or or something similar growing but make sure you maybe introduce a single flowered form or one of the wild roses and so you're you know providing something for yourself but you're also providing some forage for for pollinators so you know, we read and hear so much about honeybees and colony collapse, and I th- I think most people don't realize that honeybees are not native, uh, and that there are many many bees that are. Right, right, yeah. The honeybees tend to capture the media's attention much more than all of our wild bees that we have. And honeybees were, you know, they were introduced by some of the first European settlers who brought them with them. And but you know here in North America we have about 4,000 species of bees that were already existing here on our continent and um, and many are just just go completely unnoticed by people. Some are you know extremely tiny uh, and their nesting is pretty subtle, so you wouldn't even know one is nesting in your garden a lot of the time. So. Yeah, they've just gone been largely unnoticed until the honeybee recently uh, is having its, you know, host of problems and and is capturing more of the media's attention now. Now people are starting to learn more about all these wild bees that we have and and their importance in the landscape and pollinating our many of our crops and obviously almost all of our wildflowers. Right. Agriculture depends on honeybees, but native plants rely on native pollinators. Right. And and a lot of our native bees, such as bumblebees, are, you know, much better or better equipped to to pollinate many of our crops. So many people aren't aware of that either, that even, you know, in in a field, the honeybees, if honeybees are present, they're obviously pollinating the crop, but there's a lot of pollination going on by wild bees who are who are nesting nearby so and that's often not accounted for or it's it's very hard to measure so um, people are probably unaware of that but they do they do kind of pick up a lot of the slack (laughs) that the honeybees can't fill so that makes me think of the vibration pollinated plants that the bumblebees right exactly right yeah so honeybees uh, do not have the ability to to buzz pollinate, and that simply means grabbing hold of the pollen-producing parts of the flower and shaking them at a high frequency. And they, and so bumblebees can do this, and the shaking is by vibrating their flight muscles, and they, so they actually shake the pollen out of the anthers. And it's in flower forms that typically have uh, the the pollen just doesn't freely dehisce from the anthers; it has pores, so it needs to be shaken out. And so bumblebees are very efficient at doing this, and so they're largely responsible for pollinating almost all of our tomatoes, for example. A tomato flower is one that needs uh, buzz pollination. To put you on the spot, can you think of a native plant that's buzz pollinated? Yes, we have many. Um, I just wrote about a really fun annual native plant called partridge pea, <laughs> and it's uh, a nectarless plant, and and it's you know gets a lot of visits from bumblebees, and you can 
if you sit near a patch of the partridge pea, you can actually hear the buzzing going on as they as they buzz pollinate the flowers. So it's really fun. Uh, other examples: um, prairie smoke, um, the spider warts. You'll find smaller worker bumblebees buzz pollinating. Solomon seal. Those flowers that really? hang underneath the flower stalk are are buzz pollinated. And I'm sure I I don't know of many of them. And and a, a lot of those are just from uh, personal observation, hearing the buzz pollinating happen. Well, that's a, one thing about photographing these insects close up. You really get to see them and know them. And it, it, usually I think that a camera kind of makes a distance between the subject and the photographer. But I think in this case, it's it's a way to really study them and, and learn more and more about them. And the photographs in the book, are, they're all the cl- extreme close-ups of these insects. And we can really see them. And they're photographed on the plants that you're featuring as well. I wanted to ask you something maybe where you could comment on it. When the honeybees started to disappear from my garden, I used to have quite large bumblebees. And then all of a sudden, a little bumblebee, about half the size of the big ones, appeared in the garden, and now I really don't have the large bumblebees anymore. Yeah, so the it depends on the species of bumblebees. We actually have, so east of the Mississippi, or in eastern North America, I think we have about 21 species of bumblebees. And so each individual species is different in size. And then with the social structure of the nest, the the queen bumblebee is always much larger than her offspring, her workers, her daughters. So if you were seeing uh, really large bumblebees in the spring, for example, then it was likely the queens were emerging from their hibernation, uh, visiting your garden in early spring and then looking for a, establishing a nesting site. And so then, you know, come June, July, August, the we see the majority of bees, bumblebees foraging in, in the landscape are the, the female workers. My guess would be is you had some bumblebees nesting in your yard or, or overwintering in your yard, and that's why you maybe saw the, the larger ones some years and not others. And I guess that they've sort of filled the vacancy left by the honeybees. Right, yeah, bumblebees are uh, very efficient uh, generalist foragers, so they'll, because of their size and they've got a long tongue, they can they can visit almost any kind of flower form and flower type, and so they will, and, and much like honeybees who are also generalists that can visit a wide range of plants, and bumblebees can also fly a little bit, a lot farther than some of these smaller wild bees I talked about who are really limited in in how far they can fly. So bumblebees have a lot more uh, options, I would say, than some of the smaller wild bees. So so they're not solitary bees? You said hives? uh, Right. Bumblebees are our most social wild bee that we have in North America. So they, the queen... uh, who overwinters from, and she's produced in, in the colony the previous season, and she mates uh, in the fall and then finds a place to overwinter, typically in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then in early spring, depending on when our soil temps warm up, she emerges and, and then establishes a new nest. So 
so she it's a solitary nest until her first offspring her, her first offspring which are female um, then they become adults so now it's a social colony of multiple generations but no so honey <laughs> yeah no honey I get that question all the time so what good are these wild bees that we have if they don't produce honey and <laughs> and I say well they're pollinating all of all of our plants for us and they're helping to feed wildlife they're you know pollinating our flowering shrubs so the shrubs produce berries and which will feed our birds so it's all about the food web yeah with you, the wild bees you can't take out any part of the puzzle or the whole thing falls apart right right you've arranged the book by habitat types and plant communities you've got prairie woodland edge wetland edge I, I have a shade garden. I'm interested in the woodland wildflowers of early spring, the spring ephemerals, and I imagine some of those the pollinators are, are beetles or flies because some of these plants are blooming when it's really cold out, but some of these plants don't smell so good for people. <laughs> right, Jack in the pulpit. They are pollinated by a small gnat, I believe, so... Uh, one one problem is is just trying to photograph that or illustrate that, but you're right. Um, skunk cabbage, for mm-hmm. example, is you know not not the sweetest smelling flower, so it likely attracts flies or beetles when it flowers really early in the spring. And it and it warms inside the inflorescence. I guess we have to call it the right. hooded <laughs> flower. And for me, it's March even. Right, and that's a strategy with a lot of spring flowering plants is how can the flower form provide almost like a warm uh, microclimate for a pollinator because if it's a little bit warmer or, the, or if, for example, if the flower, like a sunflower, tracks the sun throughout the day, then it's providing a little bit warmer place for pollinators. And bees, you know, they can't fly if their body temps aren't warm enough. So if there's a flower that is a place where they can forage, warm up a little bit, have enough, their body temperature is high enough that they can fly off to the next flower, then it benefits not only the bee, but the flower in getting pollinated. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about bees and we're kind of taking it for granted that they're good, which they are, of course. Uh, And I think these days people think of bees being good, especially, maybe that's one good thing about all the press on, on honeybees. People used to just think, bees, oh no, run, we're going to get stung. And now right. I think that's changing a little bit. Yeah, that's one of the most difficult things um, for me to you know, educate others about bees is that for these wild bees, most of them, it's very unlikely to be stung by them. And, and the, the other sort of catch is that many, most of them nest in the ground. So when I'm giving a talk, I say, well, you know, about 70% of our wild bees nest in the ground. And, and you look out in the audience and there's this absolute look of fear on people because <laughs> they're thinking of that experience of being stung. Um, and usually it's uh, the ground nesting yellow jackets that right. they're stung by and which they, they often call bees very common in the Midwest for people to say those are bees, which they're not. But um, So it's hard to sort of separate those two experiences for people and, and, you know, to convince them that bees are okay and it's okay to let them nest in your landscape and 
and wasps are okay too. Yeah, right. Not say. in danger of getting stung. And I realize many people are allergic. Right. Uh, so it is a real concern for many people. When a yellow jacket buzzes me, I I always stand still, and then they kind of go away. If I don't. Right. Right. But but getting someone to do that. I tell people all the time, just, you know, stand still until they leave, but they're swatting and running and, and especially when they're trying to swat the, the yellow jacket, that's when they get stung. Right, right. You know, overreacting is, is not your best option. <laughs> so, and, you know, usually you, the stings occur by social insects, so insects that nest in a colony. And we typically get stung when we get too close to a nest because stinging is usually a nest defense, you know, strategy. So, yeah, the other options are if, if you accidentally swat a stinging insect, you will probably get stung because that's a defensive mechanism. Mm-hmm. If, um, so it's just being aware of uh, where they're nesting, and hopefully you can avoid them. But often people uh, come across nests that they're not aware of where they are, and that's when they do get stung. And all those bees and wasps are out on, on flowers. They have absolutely no interest. I, I always say the the floral buffet is, is their food, food, and most insects are not interested in stinging while they're eating. <laughs> well, you're saying stinging, and do wasps sting or do they bite? No, wasps sting. Yep, they, yeah. have, a, yep, they have a stinger. And that's usually what most people get stung by. Um, so the, these wild bees, especially their smaller size, uh, many um, can't even, their stinger can't even penetrate our skin. Yeah. So a lot of these wild bees that are featured in the book are, you know, people are very unlikely to be stung by. So usually, usually the culprit is a wasp, unfortunately, and that often delivers a lot more venom than one of these smaller bees. Some of the bees that I see in the garden are really tiny. Yes, extremely tiny. <laughs> and they, they hover, you know? They do. Many can have the ability to hover. Um, so some of those, you know, I, for just like a size reference, I say some of those really small bees are about half the size of a grain of rice. Uh. So if you can picture that, um, visiting a flower, uh, you know, get out, get out your bifocals or your magnifying glass in some cases uh, because, they, again, they often go unnoticed because they're so small. And that's happened to me, just photographing these pollinators and bees. So I'll take a photo of one insect on a flower, and until I open the photo up on my computer, I realize I've got two other species <laughs> right. I didn't even see while <laughs> I was photographing a bumblebee or something, so... Well, the the native pollinators are really as threatened, in a, in some ways, as the honeybee. We don't think about that, but of course they're threatened like every other thing, mostly by, I guess, development or in pesticides too by humans. Right. Yeah. the The wild bees, um, many of them are much more threatened with uh, extinction than honeybees. Honeybees, even though pe- beekeepers suffer. Um, losses from, of, you know, losing a colony. From a, you know, a global perspective, the, the species is not at risk of going extinct. But we have uh, several bumblebees that are, you know, in, in serious decline. 
And a lot of these other wild bees that have been very understudied um, are likely also in, the, in decline, but we really don't know whether that's true or not. And yes, you're right, habitat loss, because all of these wild bees are out nesting in our landscapes, either in the below ground or above ground and plant stems, for example, they're, they're very impacted by how we humans are changing the landscape and what, what we're planting or what we're not planting. So habitat loss is likely the big, the big factor in, in the decline. And then, of course, pesticides, like you mentioned. Right. I'm very interested in the project that you're working on that I read about. I'm helping um, with the University of Minnesota Extension three-year study. We're looking at, we've got three small cultivated blueberry growers in Minnesota, and we're just evaluating what kinds of bees are visiting the flowers. Uh, wild bees, obviously. All the growers have honeybees, but again, what's interesting about the the flower structure of a blueberry, the honeybees will usually go elsewhere instead of visiting the blueberries. So the growers have hives as a backup strategy, mm. but the a lot of the pollination is going on by bumblebees and a, and a smaller wild bee called a mining bee. So I'm helping with this study to uh, do the habitat evaluation around the farm. So what what existing habitat is there? Where are the bees nesting? Most of these uh, bees pollinating the blueberries are ground nesting. So we look for nests. Uh, and then in, in the third year of our study, we're going to be introducing uh, more forage plants in, in the areas around the farm to, to help support the bees that we identify. So it's kind of a fun, it's kind of taken me on a bit of a Track. I wanted to talk to you about your, your favorite plants. What are some of the uh, flowering plants that you grow in your garden? Oh, I have, um, I have, I live on a sort of a gravel hill, so it's, you know, the remains of the glaciers melting, and so it's kind of like a little fragment of a moraine. So a little bit challenging, but we have a lot of um, mature oak trees, so it was, mm-hmm. Largely undisturbed, um, probably grazed at one time, but never tilled because of the hill and the gravel. So we have a, these huge mature oaks. And I have a, a sort of a woodland uh, back, backyard, which is mostly just, you know, deciduous trees, including the oaks. Um, a front hillside on that gravel, which is all dry prairie plants. And then at the bottom of the slope near the street is, you know, more loamier soil so, and shaded. So I kind of have three, I call it three zones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I have a really large rain garden that collects water from, we're on, we're on a cul-de-sac. So my driveway rain garden collects um, all the water off the cul-de-sac. So I have some fun, some of those wetland edge plants in the right. book. Yeah. And the edge is where the action is. That's what we always said. <laughs> right, say. right. Yeah, especially even especially for bird activity, not, you know, and pollinators, of course. But yeah, those edges are, um, but they're always changing and fluctuating, and <laughs> and making gardening kind of challenging sometimes. So, uh, my obviously my garden is mostly native, and I just kind of strive for a lot of diversity. So, you know, I've got 
60 species of woody plants and probably over 300 species of flowering perennials. So, you know, and and it's evolving and actually becoming more shaded. So oh. my prairie is likely going to turn into a savanna pretty soon here. <laughs> and that's my next challenge is figuring out what, how I can provide enough forage for pollinators in that situation. So, right, you become a neighbor. succession manager. Right, yep, yep, totally. <laughs> and native plants are very unpredictable. I've been speaking with Heather Holm, who is the author and publisher of Pollinators of Native Plants, Attract, Observe, and Identify Pollinators and Beneficial Insects with Native Plants, a reference guide for gardeners, for naturalists, for flower lovers, and I highly recommend it, and thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Ken. It was a pleasure. Please join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show.